everyone. Welcome to the Wrong Kind of Christian Podcast. I'm Megan Martin. And if you're new to the show, thanks for joining me. We are in the middle of a very in-depth study into the book of Hebrews. And I like to say that we're looking at the author's original intention and finding practical application for our lives today. So there's been a lot of eye-opening moments so far, at least for me anyway. So I hope you'll go back and listen to the first 10 chapters if you haven't already. We've covered all the basics on why Jesus is greater, bigger, and better than anything else, and why he had to die for us. And last week, we talked about what happens if we deliberately just keep on sinning. But in light of what we would deem a pretty big sin, rejecting Jesus's sacrifice. So we're kind of switching gears here this week, and we're moving into chapter 11. So, you know, what kind of comes to mind when you hear the phrase Hebrews chapter 11? A lot of us just kind of automatically call it the faith chapter or the by faith chapter or the hall of faith chapter. Like So, you know, it's about faith. So it's a great kind of follow up to that whole chapter warning about what happens when we reject salvation through Jesus. So it's, it's really just like the exact opposite where we see some of what, you know, so many of us call the faith giants and, and what happened when they trusted in God. So it's meant to be inspirational. My hope today is that you'll hear the amazing things that God has done for these people and kind of take hold of that faith for yourself. So we're really going to take this, you know, just pretty much verse by verse today. So let's jump in. Verse one starts us off with a great definition of faith. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. Easy enough, right? Another translation has it kind of like this. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And a lot of scholars compare faith to like our five senses. So almost like the five senses, you know, um, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, um, touching, sorry, I almost forgot one, touching, uh, are what acclimate us to things here in this physical realm of life. But faith, faith is what makes us aware of the spiritual realm. So to take it a bit further, if you can see whatever it is that you're talking about, There's no need for faith, right? So you've used one of your other senses to determine that it's real. But when you can't see something, yet you still know it exists, that's faith. And to be fair, you know, you can put your faith in a lot of things, right? So I put my faith in my marriage. Like, yeah, I can see some paper that says that I'm married, but the actual connection, the love, the loyalty, the commitment, all of that takes faith. Faith is our willingness to believe in to trust in something that we can't see. And you know, that just drives some people so crazy, doesn't it? Back when I was in high school, you know, just a few years ago, I heard a statement that was meant to help explain how some people can have this faith. It was actually in a DC talk song, but it's, I think it's actually a Billy Graham quote. So I heard it in the song called Mind's Eye, and I thought it was a great way to help someone understand faith. And it's kind of stuck with me through all these years. So it said, I've never seen the wind. I see the effects of the wind, but I've never seen the wind. Faith, right? Let's go on to verse two. This is what the ancients were commended for. 
This verse doesn't seem to mean much unless you remember why this sermon was even being given or these this letter was actually being written, whatever. We don't really know what it is. These Jewish Christians were discouraged and were tempted to turn back to the old traditions and customs that they were familiar with. And they were needing some encouragement, right? So what better encouragement than the testimony of those faith giants that they grew up hearing about? The writer even takes them all the way back to the beginning and with verse three, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. Okay. It's just a simple reminder, but a great way to remind them that they already had faith, that they were required to have faith in order to believe the very creation of the world, right? So they didn't actually watch creation happen but they still believed that it did according to the word. And the writer kind of works his way through the Bible, bringing up several people who experienced something, you know, pretty unbelievable because they had faith. And he starts with Abel in verse four. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. There've been a lot of discussions around why Abel's sacrifice was accepted, but Cain's was not. And it seems to be pretty clearly laid out there that Abel's sacrifice was accepted and he was deemed righteous because of his faith, not what he brought, how much he brought, nothing else, but the fact that his heart was in the right place and he had faith. So, you know, take note guys. And let me say it again. His sacrifice was accepted because his heart was in the right place and he had faith. How many times have we heard it's a heart issue during this Hebrew study? Maybe the writer knew we weren't going to pick it up the first time or two or five. Our hearts have to be in the right place. It doesn't matter if I sell off everything I own and give all the proceeds to the poor. If I'm doing it for anything other than for God, it doesn't matter. If I'm doing it for the notoriety of doing such a quote unquote faithful act, or if I'm doing it because so-and-so did it, well, that money may still be used for good things, but it doesn't do anything for me with God, you know? He'll know if my heart is really in the right place or not. Abel's was, and so he was called a righteous man. Verse five through six focus on Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Enoch is almost like our Melchizedek, isn't he? We don't know much about him. He's talked about briefly in Genesis 5, but other than some mentions of him in other texts, there's just not much there. And, you know, side note, don't confuse this Enoch with Cain's son, Enoch. We're not talking about the same person here. We know that our Enoch is the father of Methuselah, and that he lived to be over 300 years old before he, quote unquote, he was not because the Lord took him. We know that he spent time in literal fellowship with the Lord and that the Lord was pleased with him. One of the commentaries I read while studying focused on that last phrase and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. We spend so much time working to understand God, to please him, to do things according to his will and purpose, as we should, right? But do we, those of us who are earnestly seeking the Lord, do we expect reward? I know that I, like personally, I forget this part of him, of God. 
I pray for blessings, but I don't know how often I truly expect those in the form of reward. Enoch did, and and you know, boy, was he rewarded. Next comes Noah, verse seven. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. I wonder if sometimes we forget that Noah was essentially preparing for something that the world had never seen before. A flood was completely unrelatable to the people of the world at this time and to Noah himself, yet he had faith that God had a reason for telling him to build a boat that big. There's an interesting phrase in that verse, by his faith, he condemned the world. Isn't it funny how people, non-believers, and sometimes believers themselves, can feel condemned because you are living a godly life? It's like the Holy Spirit is convicting them and they don't recognize it. So instead of seeking it out, they rebel against it out of guilt. And just the act of having faith can condemn those around you. Sometimes you never even have to say a word. I thought that was an interesting note. The next faith giant gets a few verses written about him with a few different examples of how he lived by faith. In verse 8, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. So, you know, Abraham wasn't perfectly faithful in that he kind of made, you know, a pit stop here or there on his journey. Um, He wasn't like directly listening, but the faith that he must have had to even begin the journey is more than what I, I think probably a lot of us have. He had no idea where he was going, didn't know what he was going to encounter along the way. And on top of all of that, he had to leave behind everything that he knew, neighbors, family, friends, everything to go on this journey alone. And he did. Have you noticed that what I call our quote unquote call to action word, therefore, has been used so many times in this book of Hebrews. And now it seems like this chapter is showing us that typically speaking, our faith is going to require some kind of action. We do things to show our faith. When we were talking about Noah earlier, I said that we sometimes condemn the world by just living godly lives. Maybe a better way to say that is that we condemn the world by living faithful lives. Abraham's story doesn't end with his journey. Verses 9 through 10 say, By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So did you notice that in these verses, it never says that Abraham bought several lots of land and began to build his dynasty, his empire. It says that he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. The Greek word used here literally means a resident alien, someone who lives on the land, but has no permanent residence. Abraham never owned land in the promised land outside of uh, the burial plots that were purchased for him and his wife, Sarah. One commentary that I read said that Abraham likely never felt like it was important to buy all of this land and build a permanent house because he realized and was truly living like 
this world wasn't his home. And so now I'm not saying that you should stop paying your mortgage and taxes and all of that. Like there's a biblical basis for all of that too. But for Abraham, it wasn't what God was telling him to do. God just told him to get there. And we know why now we have the ability to look back and see what an important piece of land that promised land was to the foundations of you know what was to come for the church. Abraham wasn't the only one living by faith in his household, though. Sarah, one of only two women mentioned on this list, but definitely not the only women who ever did anything by faith. Sarah gets the next verses. Verses 11 and 12. And by faith, even Sarah who has past childbearing age was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. I love the wording of Sarah's faith. She had faith because she considered him faithful. She trusted that God would deliver on his promises, even when those promises seemed you know, so outlandish, probably not any more outlandish than like, you know, building a giant boat for no apparent reason and no more outlandish than leaving behind like everything that you've ever known just because God told you to definitely not more outlandish than those. But remember our mention earlier about rewards Verses 13 through 16. Tell us a little bit more about the reward of the faithful. It says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. All of these people mentioned here didn't receive all that they were promised while still living here on earth. So here's my problem with this section. In my literal reading of the text, and more likely due to my literal understanding, I struggled to grasp this piece because all of the people mentioned here did get the things that they were promised. You know, like Abraham made it to his land. Sarah had her baby, Isaac, right? We we saw that they got these things, but here it says that they didn't. And so I was kind of grappling with this. And for some reason, I tend to forget that oftentimes the Bible writers look through what I call like a microscope and a telescope to get the full picture. And you kind of have to be able to switch back and forth. Like the book of Isaiah is a perfect example of this type of writing, like something that is said that can be applied immediately with the microscope, but can also be applied to the future with the telescope. So I did what I always do when I'm struggling to get a grasp on something. I asked God, and then I started looking through the commentaries. And I found a quote from Charles Swindoll that helped me a lot. He says, at this point, the writer of Hebrews sets aside the palette of paints he had been using to fill his canvas with examples of faith. He steps back, as it were, gestures at the procession of personalities that he's been painting and makes a sweeping statement. All these, he says, died in faith without receiving the promises. Wait, didn't Abraham make it to the promised land? Didn't Sarah have her promised child, Isaac? Yes, but what they experienced in this life was merely a foretaste, a shadow of things to come. Abraham didn't receive the full promise, just a down payment. Abraham and Sarah had only one child. The promise was for descendants innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. 
The land in which he sojourned was indeed the promised land, but he, Sarah, Isaac, and all their household lived there as strangers and exiles on the earth. Swindle has always had a way of explaining things that I really appreciate. Like he's very to the point, but he adds in a little flair that, you know, makes it palatable, I guess. After this little kind of aside about Sarah, the writer goes back to the writer of Hebrews, goes back to Abraham's faith. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Guys, this has always been one of those moments that has wrecked me in the Bible. Like, I don't think I truly understood Abraham's plight on this until I had my own child. But God was asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. And that was heart-wrenching. And I get it. I so get it. The, this moment is a foreshadow of God sacrificing his own son for us. And that is heart-wrenching as well. But like Abraham's faith, not knowing the full picture, like, wow, you know, God promised Abraham a son who would bring him so many descendants. And yet here he's asking Abraham to take all that away himself. And Abraham was willing to do that. He was willing to give away the first fulfilled promise with faith that God would be faithful. And then Isaac has his own faith verse. Verse 20 says, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. I know that some people really struggle with the way this blessing was handled. And I mean, do you guys remember back when we were talking about what an heir really means? Heir is the term that refers more to birthright than seniority. So we take this precedence here too. Like Esau was older, but Jacob got the blessing. And sure, Esau didn't like it. Truthfully, Isaac didn't like it either, really. But it was God's plans for whatever reason that Jacob would be the one to carry the blessing forward. And Isaac though not super willingly, gave that blessing through faith. And we keep going down the line here. Verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Another interesting little tidbit here. Jacob also didn't give the greater to Ephraim, who was the oldest, but instead to Manasseh. Verse 22, by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Okay, guys, so so upon Joseph's death, his thoughts were for the future generations, reminding them to believe God's promises. You know, this verse actually reminds me a lot of my granny, which is my dad's mom. Um, she lived like a devoutly faithful life for as long as I knew her. And I recently inherited one of her Bibles. And, you know, as it turns out, my Bible journaling may be a bit hereditary. I have just loved looking through her thoughts and seeing the verses that connected with her throughout her life. But I can remember her telling me at a very young age that God would always see me through. Have you guys ever had someone of an older generation towards the end of their days pouring the promises of God into you? It resonates a little differently because you know they've lived a long life full of blessings, full of trials, and what they've determined is the most important thing that they can live with you, that they can leave with you is reminding you that God is faithful and that he is true. Like they've lived through all this stuff, you know, and they want to make sure that you realize it's all worth it. So Joseph is reminding everyone that God will be faithful in his promises. So be faithful to him. 
And Joseph, like he even went a step further than just telling them to remain faithful, but he even kind of demonstrated that faithfulness even through his death. So he left instructions on his burial, but those instructions were literally to not bury him until they were in the promised land. So think about that, guys. That means that Joseph trusted so much in the promise of the Lord that he didn't even want to be buried until they reached the promised land. And the Israelites, I mean, they, they took that oath. They made that promise to him. And so that means that Joseph's tomb, I guess, sat unburied for like a whole lot of years. Moses wasn't even born yet when Joseph died. So all those years, Joseph's bones sat unburied as a testament to faith. And because of that oath that Joseph made the Israelites swear to him, Moses did take his bones with him when they left Egypt. Those bones were carried around the whole time the Israelites were wandering. And, you know, finally, because of Joseph's faith, he was buried in the land of Canaan where he knew God would always take him. Like that's some crazy faith, right? The next person on the list gets a more than a single verse, much like Abraham did. Verse 23 actually has to do more with Moses's parents than him, but it says, by faith, Moses's parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Not only did Moses's parents' faith in God allow them to see that he was someone special, but it also gave them courage to disobey the king, which, you know, ultimately could have led to the deaths of their entire family but they had faith that God had a plan. Verses 24 through 26 talk about Moses himself. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. What a great reminder for these Hebrew Christians who are struggling, understandably so, with the temptation of comfort. Moses was faithful, even though he wasn't raised to be that way, and chose to obey God instead of sitting back and enjoying some of the greatest comforts of life, right? Verse 27, by faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Moses, of course, felt fear, but he was able to see that God's will was more important than living in that fear. So verse 28, by faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. I find the wording there to be like really interesting because the writer just puts it out there that he kept the Passover. But honestly, guys, this is like the invention of the Passover. Can you imagine the faith that that required knowing that God was sending an angel of death to take all the firstborns, but having the faith to trust that the blood of the lamb would save them. Now, how's that for foreshadowing, right? And, you know, I, I really appreciate how the, how laid out the author is on this chapter. Like we move from just person to person, kind of right down the line. And, and now we're just, we're moving on into the whole nation of Israel. So verse 29 through 30 by faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. Both of these examples, like extraordinary things that happened for the Israelites as a whole, required faith and obedience. Actually, kind of thinking back on all of these faith giants, there's not a single one that displayed faith by just saying that they were faithful. Isn't that crazy? There was always some kind of act 
some outward display that they had faith in God to see them through. And that's not about courage. If that were true, then the Egyptians would have been just fine, right? Because they had plenty of courage and they could have crossed the, the Red Sea uninhabited too. But so no, not courage, but faith an amazing faith. The next verse is uh, focused on the other woman to appear on our list, a prostitute named Rahab. In verse 31, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who are disobedient. Rahab was a woman who was, you know, well known for her immoral ways, but she helped the Israelites because she recognized God is Lord of all. So remember our definition of faith, being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see. So Rahab had faith and that faith saved her life. And it's a good thing too, because Rahab is accepted into the Israelite community. She marries and she becomes the mother of Boaz, who becomes Ruth's husband. Like, I won't give you the whole genealogical list here, but it's important to know, like she's in Jesus's lineage. Yep. Rahab, the prostitute. You think you've messed up too much for God to use you? Not a chance. We've gotten to this point in the chapter where the writer realizes that he can't just kind of keep retelling the stories they already know about their ancestors. So he just kind of like throws it all out there. So it's a long section that finishes out the chapter, verses 32 through 40. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and and rooted foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went, out, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. I read a quote recently that said that the world isn't necessarily friendly to people of faith, nor is it really worthy of them. I know a lot of us who are listening to this podcast today are witnessing some changes in our societies, cultural changes that are making it, you know, maybe uncomfortable to be a person of faith. And I want to encourage you guys to keep going. Stay connected to God and to your church community, and don't stop being faithful, even when it's hard, even when it's scary. I also know that most of us who are listening to this podcast now aren't in the type of physical danger that these mentioned here in these verses we're in, but it does still exist today. It still happens. I'm actually reading uh, an updated version of the book, Jesus Freaks, to my youth group right now, and they're so fascinated that the stories we're reading are, that we are reading from are now, you know, like they're happening in the past few years. Have you ever heard of the voice of the martyrs? It's a nonprofit that serves persecuted Christians and you can find more about them at uh, persecution.com and I'll link it in the episode details below, but I get their free monthly magazine that shares stories about the persecuted around the world. And every month I'm just so stricken by how scary life is for some Christians 
simply for the fact that they are believers, that they're faithful. Voice of the Martyrs offers ways to partner with them to help serve these persecuted people. And one of the ways is by filling um, what they call an action pack. So, uh, you know, you can think of it like a, a shoebox for Christmas kind of campaign, but but for the whole family. And they make it easy. You know, you can simply donate money online or, or you know, send a check or whatever, and they'll fill the box for you. But you can also fill your own box or your own pack, I guess, an action pack and make it a bit more personalized. And that's a solid, tangible way to help, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, Voice of the Martyrs also has a free event, free, free virtual event coming up soon, March 5th, called Imprisoned for Christ, that will um, feature speakers who've, you know, lived it. They've been imprisoned for their faith, and now they're sharing that experience with us. It's free, so, you know, go check it out and be inspired to partner in prayer and financially with Voice of the Martyrs to help those who are living with persecution today. I'll add this real quick here that this is not a sponsored ad. Voice of the Martyrs has nothing to do with my podcast at this time. Um, I just really believe in what they're doing. And so I want to talk about them today. So uh, this week, guys, I'm I'm praying that you will walk by faith when it's difficult, when it's scary, even when it seems, you know, just mundane, walk in obedience by faith. Next week in chapter 12, we'll be reminded that this walk is actually a race. And I will talk with you all then. Bye.